He's a retired police sergeant. He's also a mixed martial artist and an expert in law enforcement use of force. While on the job, he was involved and was known as the River Run Riot, where biker gangs went to war with each other. He's here to talk about homicides, use of force, and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. What do you get when you combine social audio with social media all in one free app? It's called Breakout. Get it at letbreak.com. There's a free version for your iPhone and Android devices. Be sure to follow John J. Wiley of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Use a profile at LET Radio Show. Get it for free at letbreak.com or at the App Store and Google Play. Calling us from the Nevada area, we have John Gentile on the phone. John is a retired Las Vegas Metro Police Sergeant. He's also a bit of an expert when it comes to martial arts and and also involved in a film, Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force. We're going to talk about a notorious incident in the biker world called the River Run Riot and also his experience involving use of force. John, thanks for your service and thanks for being a guest on Law Enforcement Today Show. Very much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. You come highly recommended. And by the way, how many years did you do in law enforcement? I did it over 26, 26 and a half. And, and you still okay after all that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I did pretty well with my exit and did, did through my career. I, had a, I was very fortunate to work not only in patrol, but like several other assignments and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Awesome. I'm, I'm so glad for you. What are you doing now? Well, these days I've got a company called Sensible Training Solutions. We just help out law enforcement with classes you can't get in the academy, such as surveillance and some other stuff. And gotcha. um, and I still teach martial arts on the side just to kind of keep myself going and stay fit, and I enjoy it. I've well, been a lifer. Good for you. I, I, one of the things, my wife and I, we, she, she wants me to watch these American-produced police dramas, and they're so far-fetched. Like, for example, surveillance. And I worked DEA, as detailed DEA, for almost two years. And one of our best pieces of equipment for, and you don't use it anymore, so I'll talk about it, was a yellow cab. You could follow people all over the place in that thing. But it was yeah. a skill set that a lot of people, if you watch TV, man, they're right behind the guys. And that doesn't work in real life. <laughs> no, no. Not all the time, right? No, it's, very uh, rare. Very rare does it It's work. like police work, right? It's like finesse. You have to have some finesse, and you need numbers usually. Yeah, and the other thing, too, was doing... Uh, I worked narcotics for a long time, and I was not an undercover. You know the difference. I did more of the surveillance stuff, and one of the things we would do is we'd sit with our back several spots down and look through the rearview mirror and do surveillance that way because they would always look to the left when they're coming in the door and to the right, but... They didn't look for people looking from behind. That was very rare. Yeah, 
I mean, sometimes you got to pull up, and, and sometimes somebody in front actually has the best view, just like you said. Yeah. So your career, Las Vegas, that's a no-joke city. That, by the way, that's an agency that when I was a young man, which is a long, long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, did not have the best reputation it, back in the casino movie days, all that stuff. But, man, they really cleaned it up. They've got a great reputation, a great law enforcement agency. Yeah, they went through a lot of transition. There's a lot of history, good and bad, I, I guess, with the with the police back then. But uh, overall, I can tell you that, you know, it's about over 2,000 members now. It's a big area, a lot of population, real professional. And, I, you know, even though I'm critical of training with police, I'd have to say uh, at this point, you know, they kind of have the gold standard. They're, they're doing a lot of stuff. Of course, we've had some bad incidents in town. Yeah, every every agency does. And one of the things that, that I would say, and then we're going to get into your experience. People tend to think that we were experts in mixed martial arts. We were experts in grappling. We're experts in jujitsu. We're experts in boxing. We were not experts in anything. And they taught us different wrist locks and hand things and all these, which never seemed to work in real life. And the amount of training we had with self-defense or physical use of force, hands-on use of force, was very, very small compared to the book studies. Was that your experience? Oh, yeah. It was for sure. And, you know, with a limited amount of time, you had a lot of training you had to get through. So it was divided up. Yeah, we did. And I love it when people say, well, every cop should get training in jujitsu. And I'm like, okay, who's going to pay for it? Yeah, I mean, it's it comes down to time and money and, you know, good, solid instruction. I mean, it, you know, as far as training under the agency. But as you know, there are just so many topics and so many things that a cop has to know these days that some of that stuff does take a back seat. Yeah, and by the way, defunding police doesn't help that at all because if you want someone to do a job, it's eight, 10 hours. Some agencies are doing 12 hours on and then they're off for a couple of days. Then where's the time going to be committed to this training? We already have a lot of training and it never ends. Yeah. Uh, we, we did yearly training. We had, I think, a five-month academy. You had on-the-street training. Uh, it never ended. And fortunately, or unfortunately for many people, it was on-the-job training and... I remember getting into my first fist fight as a young police and the old timers. When I say old timers, I was lucky, John. Uh, when I came into Baltimore in 1980, we had many Vietnam veteran combat officers that uh, were highly skilled, were really good police, and boy, did they chew me out. They're like, I don't ever want to see you in a fist fight ever again, ever again. Yeah. It's not good, but I mean, you know, you got to keep up on it. You got to train and you got to keep your, uh, your mind fresh while you're out there. You certainly do. And by the way, the mind, I'm glad you brought that up. We were also taught that the strongest muscle we had, the one we need to use the most was your brain. Yeah, that's important. I mean, they have all these names for it now, but they call it de-escalation. And, you know, for years, what did we have before that verbal judo? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways. It's still the same thing. It's still communication. It's, right. it's command presence. It's, you know, you, you have to have those things. And the other thing about the verbal judo or de-escalation, we were de-escalating just like you before it was a thing. We were doing community policing before it was a phrase that everyone uses nowadays. That was everyday policing. Uh, we didn't go hands-on with everybody every time you could. And usually you could talk them down. Mm -hmm. And that was your first attempt because 
I was always taught, no matter how good you are, how physically fit you are, no matter how strong you are, how great of a fighter you are, there's always, always someone crazier, stronger, or luckier that gets you one time on the button and it's lights out. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Return to a conversation with John Gentile. We'll talk about the River Run Biker Riot and so much more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. There was social media, and then there was social audio. Now the Breakout app combines the best of both. Best of all, the Breakout app is free with versions for iPhone and Android devices. You can download the app for free at the App Store and Google Play, or you can download for free at www.letbreak.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Return to conversation with John Gentile. He is a retired Las Vegas Metro Police Sergeant. He's also a martial arts instructor and involved in the film Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force, and much more. And part of your job in law enforcement and it was the bikers, and I'm air quoting because I rode for many, many years. I consider myself a biker, but I'm not a one percenter. And there's a big difference. And not everybody in the 1% clubs are bad guys. So I want to get that out there right now because someone's going to say, hey. But when they get ugly, it gets ugly fast. And part of your job was monitoring these guys, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, we had to keep track of, uh, you know, obviously the OMGs, as we call them, or, you know, obviously motorcycle clubs. Um, organized motorcycle gangs, we would have to keep track of them because uh, they have a lot of issues nationally, and they do several runs, and we had monitored them for years. And they do that every year around the same time. It's it's well known. It's not a, a hidden thing. It's not like a, a casual weekend ride. Everybody knows this is coming up. No, and it's a lot of bikers that you get together, not not just OMGs, as we call them. You know, I mean, a lot of uh, enthusiasts that ride bikes would show up. It was basically every April of every year. You always knew where it was. And, of course, it's, it, it was came, usually it was like about third to Sturgis, which is like the biggest. And so we would follow the national headlines. We obviously had local issues with several uh, biker clubs that were in town. So we would try to keep on top of the intel that would come in so that we could try to prepare for that event. Uh, as you know, they're not all biker gangs uh, get along. Yeah, no, there's... And that's there's, uh, how it goes. It would, and it'd be totally blunt. And I don't know why we have to tiptoe uh, around these conversations. A lot of people do. To be totally blunt, there are elements of these motorcycle gangs or clubs that are no different than other organized crime groups. They're no difference. They're they're like the mafia, they're like MS-13, they're like all these other ones. So when you have the different factions, different clubs, a lot of times it's about turf warfare, it's about resentment, it's about grievances, and we're going to settle it, we're going to settle it with violence. And that's always been a concern on the East Coast, the West Coast, and in, in Las Vegas as well, I'm sure. 
Yeah, and and there you know there's a segment of OMGs in these micro in these biker clubs that are definitely involved in their activities. You know whether it be you know peddling drugs or stealing motorcycles or you know involved in other stuff. So yeah, they're in the gamut. You know, but they are territorial about their clubs. There's a lot of pride within motorcycle clubs. And uh, in these organized motorcycle gangs, there's a lot of turf. There's issues over patches, which are, you know, their cuts, as they call them. Um, and, and so there's a lot of rivalries that, that stem over that and a lot of issues. So you're acutely aware. And by the way, law enforcement has had a, a long relationship sometimes troubled with the different motorcycle clubs. Uh, and usually, I'll be honest with you, John, it seems to be portrayed as this motorcycle club's a bunch of choir boys. They're awesome, and the police were horrible. Well, it's because you, you get a lot of publicity on boys for top and things like that, which, you know, listen, all that stuff is good. And there are some clubs that are not one percenters, as we would say, right? One percent, because one percent of all clubs are outlaws. Right. And if they're proud of it and they put it on their jackets... That should give you kind of a hint. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, they're walking around with their jacket. You see a one percent symbol, even if you're somebody who does not regularly conduct intel or, or track motorcycle gangs. Uh, it should be kind of a hint to you, you know, that that's the kind of club you're dealing with. Now, a little insider information. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty heavily tattooed guy. I always want to have more. But the problem is when I have money, I don't have time. When I have time, I don't have money. So I know what I want, but it's a matter of finding the right artist as well. Some of the tattoos that people sport and wear, they don't know the history behind these tattoos. And we've had on the East Coast, we've had stories of people with knives and having tattoos cut off them. How would you elaborate the lifestyle and culture of the criminal 1% motorcycle gangs when it comes to tattoos patches and all that stuff well it's 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 a hierarchy really you know in the order of what you believe in is going to be the club and you know you're going to have other priorities in your life but your life is the club you you've it's almost like you said like mafia right the the club is first and so everything the club is part of you know on the cuts you got, obviously, you know, the position of the person. You're going to know who you're talking to. If you're talking to somebody important, might be listed on his jacket, you know, road captain. He might be a president, might be sergeant at arms. They do have a hierarchy. There is a rank. And, you know, they care about their cuts. And uh, you don't wash them, obviously. Um, they, they, uh, they care about their club more than anything. So if on a territory note, or something that could quickly irritate them would be you replicating what they have and believe in. So that's why a lot of clubs, when it comes to their jackets, their cuts, they, you know, especially like in California, the Hells Angels in California, for instance, is a big club. You know, they have the California rocker at the bottom. Normally, you have where they're from. Well, if people try to duplicate that kind of stuff, that's where some of these issues of territory come into play. Right. And, and you don't really have to be in California. If you're replicating what another club does via tattoo or cut, patch, whatever, you could find yourself in big trouble. 
you know, I sold my motorcycle a few years ago. And and here's the reason why, John. I and I'm in my early sixties. I've never been in a motorcycle accident. I'm looking to knock on wood right now. And I, I said to myself one day after a close call, do I really want to go through physical recovery from a motorcycle accident and being 60 years old? And the answer for me was no, I do not. Uh, secondly, too much exposure over the years as a cop and whatever it might be, I'm very fair-complected. Sun, wind, sand here in South Florida, I would get like sunburned notoriously every time I ran. So look, I want and air conditioning, and I want shade. And I want to be comfortable in my ripe old age. Uh, but when I did ride, one of the things that, that I did do was I never, ever wore anything other than plain shirts, plain jeans, and even like jackets. They would never have any patches, nothing like that on that. And it wasn't a, a, a respect thing so much as, well, maybe it was respect. This is your deal. This is my deal. And I'm not like you. Um, and, and that's most of the people I rode with. Yeah. I, it's, you're right. You're kind of, you know, you're right on it. We took that story. Um, like I said, it's just, it's a territory thing. It's a patch thing. It's a pride thing. It's the number one thing if you're in a one percenter club. And now we're going to uh, talk about like said, what happens when those things clash and John's experience with the River Run Ride. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We're going to take a short break, return to conversation with John Gentile in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O, Podopolo. The Law Enforcement Today Show returning a conversation with John Gentile. John is a retired Las Vegas Metro Police Sergeant. He is also a martial artist. He does training to help law enforcement agencies. He's heavily involved in the film Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force, which I cannot wait to see. And part of your career in Las Vegas was monitoring the motorcycle clubs, the OMGs, and the 1% clubs. And we talked about Laughlin and their annual run. Uh, and there's a notorious event called the River Run Riot, where a couple clubs... I mean, wait, they went at it, and you were on scene for that, weren't you? Well, I responded to the in-progress, which, uh, you know, we, we knew that this would happen many years ago. We had been talking about it, and, um, you know, I'll elaborate right now if you're good with it. We'll just go with the fact was the two big gangs on the block that really had some hard issues with each other were the Hells Angels and the Mongols out of California. And people don't know of the Hells Angels. You know, there's plenty of material for you to Google. They're international. They are the biggest uh, outlaw motorcycle gang that's out there. So Mongols, typically their territory has been or was California. Now, they've grown and they've expanded, but they've had friction for a lot of years. And there's been fights between them. A lot of it was over a bottom rocker, which goes on the cuts. On the for people who don't know, that's you know the leather vest. There were some territory type issues there, and uh, things grew between them. And they did have some incidents prior to 2002. 
So obviously we're talking about Laughlin 2002, which is when the, the big incident occurred. So I was working in intelligence at the time. You know, we tried to do our best to obviously stay ahead of national issues. We knew that there was issues between the two clubs. But at the same token, we were becoming a kinder, gentler police department. We were trying to work with the bikers. We were trying to have good tourism. We were trying to keep things pretty mellow, to say the least. We wanted people to have a good time, but be safe. That was more or less the mode we were in in 2002, to be fair. And tourism, as you know, big deal, especially for Laughlin, a small town on the river with, you know, maybe eight casinos or so that was going, that were going on back then. So um, how we set it up was we didn't have as much staffing as we have today, usually down there, but we did keep it staffed. We did have intelligence. We did relay what we knew, which, you know, we knew there was friction between those two clubs. Now, in the private sector, these clubs have to stay someplace. So, you know, bottom line is every year at that time, it was the Flamingo. The uh, Hells Angels would make that their home base. They would park their bikes out there. They would rent a block of rooms. And they were treated very well for a lot of years. I mean, police were always there. Yes, we had some incidents with them on occasion, but that's pretty much where they stayed. They stayed at the Flamingo. And at that time, uh, it was open where people could wear their cuts, wear their patches, and you knew who they were. It was like bragging rights. And, you know, in April, it's a beautiful time of year. We have all these bikes come in. And yet a lot of other people come in. A lot of, a lot of people who just ride bikes. So it turned into a big event. But everything leading up to this was that we knew there was friction between those two clubs, but we had heard friction every single year. So every year we were preaching that there was friction, but again, sometimes not a lot of things occurred on a high level to really warrant maybe all the enforcement down there, maybe in some other people's eyes that were up the chain. However, we did the best we could with what we had. We always kept up on our intelligence. We even had people, you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, cameras in play. The hotels have a lot of video and there's a lot of undercover covert kind of guys walking through the crowd. You got uniform presence at two, two o'clock in the morning on in uh, 2002 in April. Uh, you know, I'm going to try to give you the right date. It was just like a Saturday night. And about two o'clock in the morning onto the Sunday, which is obviously when it's starting to tone down, you have a couple things go down. And there's always like a lot of little things that, that everyone I think misses, but there had been kind of like the Mongols were, were kind of, we'll say that they were walking through some areas where the Hells Angels were hanging out. The Mongols had Harris. So those hotels are not far apart. They're, they're, they're maybe a mile between those two hotels. So they had a rift between the two of them. And the long and short is uh, the Mongols had some Hells Angels at the hotel. And these clubs obviously don't fight fair. You know, if you have more and you have less, usually that's a problem. And so there, there was no doubt some beforehand stuff of intimidation or things going on at Harris, and the private people that had the hotels were really not exactly sure how many Mongols 
um, how many Hells Angels were staying at a Mongol hotel. Okay, so you had Mongols and you had Hells Angels inside Harris, but you had a smaller group of Hells Angels. <clears throat> well, something occurred where the Hells Angels contacted everybody down at the Flamingo, those that were still up and awake, and you know those that could mobilize. They had some issues with the Mongols that they were not going to back down from. They showed up at Harris, and they showed up basically, and the melee began. It didn't take long. They, they swarmed around a bar. Um, obviously, we had gaming tables. We're still going with, you know, innocent people that were not involved. And uh, the, the fight, when it broke out, it, it was all over the place, all different parts of the casino. There were a lot of items used, such as hammers, wrenches, all kinds of stuff they brought in. And it was, it was both sides that, that took you know, took the brunt of that. And you know, there was probably 20 people injured that we know of uh, that were inside the casino. At least uh, off of this man, we had three people dead. Yeah. And even one of our officers ended up, uh, you know, shooting, you know, shooting one of them on the way out. So, you know, it, it was a horrible scene. And by the way, there there are lots of surveillance videos uh, out there of this, and you can do a Google search and look for Laughlin River Run or River Run Riot. You'll find it. And when you said the words melee, or, or, it it was like a riot. Is a I can't think of a better word. All of a sudden, it you could see little things brewing. When someone would analyze a film, like a dog fight. For example, it's not the fight; it's the stuff, the body language beforehand that lets you know the bad oh, stuff's yeah. coming. And that was happening. But when it hit, it was like an explosion. You hit it on the head. I mean, that's that is what it was. It was, you know, like I said, the the Hell's Angels, you know, drove up there and and got the numbers. And uh, right after that, you saw the stare downs, the walking around, the taunting. And how many people died as a result of violence that night? One one got killed on the road. Um, by he ended up getting shot, no doubt. But they believe he was, you know, shot by a you know a Mongol. But you know, at, at that casino, and two dead there. But the whole thing overall, three dead, at least twenty injured. We had some that, that ended up in Vegas at the hospital up here. Some in Bullhead. Uh, a lot of unreported, obviously, too. Yeah. You know, there's those numbers are obviously numbers that are reported. And we take a short break. We're talking with John Gentile. He is retired Las Vegas Metro Police Sergeant. He is also a martial arts instructor, uh, a practitioner, and also heavily involved with the film Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force. When we return, we're going to talk more about the Laughlin River Run riot and what he's doing today. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter, and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. 
Sports Law Enforcement Today Show. Returning our conversation with John Gentile, retired Las Vegas Metro Police Sergeant. Uh, he was on scene for the Biker Wars in Laughlin, Nevada, also known as a River Run Riot. Uh, and he is a martial arts instructor, practitioner, and heavily involved in film Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force. Part of me is just fascinated with the, the, the whole biker war culture. And because I'm, it was never an issue where I worked in Baltimore. It, it just wasn't. We had issues in other parts of Maryland, primarily with pagans and outlaws and those sorts of things. But they were never the kind of incident like this one. Uh, and they, you've said it earlier, the, the pagans, I mean, the, the Mongols and the Hells Angels have had dust-ups and problems for years. But I don't think anybody saw some of this magnitude coming. Did you think it would be this big? Well, for years we've been talking about certain clubs having run-ins with other clubs. So it's not like we didn't discuss it and talk about it. You know, um, we had we used to have other crimes. We would stop some of the OGs. You know, we've got some narcotics cases against them. We stopped the one time. We've got a bunch of stolen bikes in the back coming out of Laughlin. So it's you know we had other things going on with the bikers. However, the always the same talk that would swirl around would be basically who's not getting along with who this right. year and what's right. been going on. Because if you look at na- nationwide at any one time, you could see what clubs really are taking action against other clubs. And by the and, way, it's, in, in all know, fairness, it's not just a Las Vegas problem. It's a, an international problem. Canada's had issues. Other countries have had issues with extreme biker violence. Um, so it's not just you guys. And you guys handled it well. How many people wound up getting locked up that night? Um, you know, that's that night, I, I can't really tell you exact numbers because there were, there were many others locked up after that. And then there was many others that went to the hospital that got locked up later. So those numbers, I don't have the, the, the gotcha. base tally on that. But, you know, like like I said, you know, you had probably 10 or 12 that went to the Bullhead Hospital, which is across the river. Some of those, four of those at least, were flown to Vegas because of critical wounds from stabbings and, and other, other weapons that they had inside the hotel. And, and you know, it's not like... You know, if you back then, if you could see somebody with their cuts on, they might have some tools on them. They might have a hammer. They might have a flashlight. All these items later on, working in the intel capacity, I worked with the, uh, tried to gather evidence for the the people that were going to respond. I mean, homicide was going to respond. We had people that were, you know, dead. We had people that were injured badly. And so, uh, you know, we were going to review that tape we were going to find out and try to identify everybody that was involved. We're trying to find out who started it, you know, who may have engaged at the beginning, who did the lethal, uh, you know, shots or, or hits. And uh, that was more or less, you know, run, running us right into when that occurred because you haven't had a lot of things going down. You had like 200 people detained inside the casino. You had to figure out what their role was. Right. And this is, we're talking 2 a.m. in the morning, the end of April 2002. So, and you had to have stability inside the casino, you know, life safety first. Right. So we went in and we 
pulled the tapes, started working on things that we could work on, started trying to figure out where everybody went that was involved because there were some people, obviously a lot of them had fled. You know, we had gotten 200. I am sure there was quite a bit more that were there by the time everybody got there. Like I said, you got eight hotels. They're not that far apart, but nonetheless, uh, once some of that stuff went down, you know, there's no doubt that some of the people had fled and left. I can tell you, I've never had experience like this in, in police work, but I couldn't, I can't imagine or have a point of reference saying, okay, you and 20 guys got to go in there and there's th- 300 people and they're fighting. There's 300 people that are trying to kill each other. It's not just like, you know, the marquee to Queensbury rules. These people are hammering each other. They're stabbing. There's gunshots. That's something I wouldn't want to face. Well, you can go online, like you said, and you can see a lot of that footage. And you can see a lot of that, how, how they were more or less antagonizing one another and um, around the bar area and how it exploded. It does not take a long time. And what do you have at each hotel? A few cops probably at 2 a.m. Right. You probably didn't have full staffing at that time. Now, everybody responded, but there was ample time for some of that stuff to go down. I mean, you don't need a lot of time. And I'm sure... Once that melee broke out. Yeah, well, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm sure your agency and many of the command staff mm-hmm. caught some heat from the media about this. Well, everyone took heat at the end uh, when this was all over. The bikers would not have their event that they had on April 27, 2002. They would not be allowed to wear their colors or their cuts. It wouldn't be as enjoyable for them in the next bunch of years because the police would be everywhere they turned. And the hotels would really support the police in terms of, you know, there was some civil lawsuits, and you can look those up and see, you know, how, you know, I believe was uh, sued involving, you know, some of this. So, you know, there's vicarious liability, as they call it, and right. liability for some of these casinos, even if they, you know, they made a comfortable environment at the time. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm not sure what more they could have done that night. Obviously, that night went down the way it went down, but. I think in retrospect, yeah, I think Metro now handles it better. I'm sure that the resources are, you know, I'm retired right now, but I'm sure the resources are more in play. I mean, we had a lot of years of calmness, and you have to remember the history. I mean, the Angels used to go in there all the time. We did not have the melee that we had. And we had some issues here and there, but it was not like 2002. And it's just like that everything. oftentimes creates a culture change in, in law enforcement and government policies and all those things. And, and people talk about, you know, the, the police defunding. And I always say this, and we'll go into your film in a moment. Things like this are like a pendulum. It swings from one direction to another. And the next Laughlin rubber, river run riot will change the way governments handle things and be more proactive and a little bit more uh, hands-on than they were before. So, John, thanks for your involvement in explaining that. I want to talk about the film you've been involved in, Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force. Tell us about that. Well, Wrist Lock, uh, the martial arts influence and use of force, really covers a lot in the movie. The movie's about an hour and a half long. It's a movie. There's a lot of retired police people in it. 
um, so that they could speak out. You know, we didn't want to really interfere with police departments per se or anybody saying something about their agency, but it's stuff that police have talked about for 20, 30 years or 40 right. years, right. which is there's a segment of police that, that really need to train more. The film kind of outlines the fact that, you know, if you train martial arts, which is the origins of all tactics, if, if we're a cop and we train in defensive tactics, any move that we do, we're really deriving from what? Martial arts. Right, exactly. Is there a correlation with someone who trains in martial arts and makes it a lifestyle being a better, more effective police officer or federal agent or corrections? And the answer to that seems to be yes. Because you instilled confidence in your techniques, your tactics, you actually make better judgments on use of force while you're in the field. Mine, like I said, Las Vegas Metro, I think gold standard as far as some of those agencies. But there's so many agencies throughout the country that, you know, it's a time and money thing. And it's like, we've got calls holding, we can't train tonight. With that being said, you have the other side of the coin. You have cops out there that... There's an obesity factor. There's a high blood pressure factor. Oh, there's a heart factor. Yeah. And there's a factor of PTSD in, in, in officers that has been kind of outlined. So you have mental health and body. You know, so the film does cover and touches on that, basically touches on the fact that, you know, basically anybody into that field, and you could say this about many other fields as well, because to me, martial arts is healthy. It's good for you. It builds confidence. It'll reinforce any technique you learn at work. It's going to make you, what, better on the street? Absolutely. And, and if you have to go to self-defense mode. John, where can people yes. get more information about the film? Very easily. It's available now on Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Microsoft Store, and other streaming platforms. LightningDigitalEntertainment.com is our site. Love for people to check it out. Awesome. John, thanks so much for being a guest on the show All and your service. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me, and thank you to everybody else for listening. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.